0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I don't know why the wedding trope is so prevalent in movies that are set in some sort of medieval backdrop, but I don't know, Princess Bride, Robin Hood, there's always some reluctant bride who is being forced to marry some sort of unsavory prince. Now, of course, if you know the Princess Bride, spoiler alert, you know that Princess Buttercup's true love is is waiting to rescue her. He's trying to get into the castle with his friends. Uh, But for the record, you never see a reluctant prince being forced to marry an unsavory princess only to be rescued by his true love. But hey, It's 2023, so maybe that movie is coming soon to a theater near you. We open our Bibles, we see that marriage is one of God's favorite metaphors to describe his relationship with his people. Of course, in the New Testament, the church is known as the Bride of Christ. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul even uses the marriage relationship between husbands and wives as a parable of the relationship between Christ and his church, but Paul didn't come up with that on his own. He wasn't sitting there one day and thinking, you know, marriage is a good picture of this whole thing. It's something that he inherited. He, he brought it from the rich history of the Old Testament because God frequently likened his covenant people, Israel, as his bride. We have an entire book, the book of Hosea, that is where God tells, tells a prophet to marry a woman of ill repute just to make a point about the way he loves the nation and the way the nation rejected him. And God doesn't shy away from using very forceful language to describe his people as adulterers when they turn their back on the Lord. I genuinely think that that's why marriage seems to always be in the crosshairs of satanic attack. God sees it as more than just the loving relationship between a man and a woman. God sees it as a parable of his gospel. And if you can corrupt the parable, then you can tarnish the thing that the parable points to. We get to chapter two in the book of Jeremiah, and the language of marriage shows up in a very powerful image that's given to us by the prophet. So if you've got your Bible open, hopefully you're in the second chapter of Jeremiah this morning, and I would ask that if you're able, if you'd stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Jeremiah chapter two, I'll be looking at verses one through about nine today. Jeremiah chapter two, beginning there in verse one. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me into the wilderness in a land, not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest, all who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. And with your children's children, I will contend. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the pictures that you paint in your word that help us to understand your relationship with us better. May we understand them correctly as we work through this, these verses today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. Just a couple of things I want to point out as we get here into chapter 2. And one of the things to help us as we read through Jeremiah and we preach through Jeremiah is that the chapters aren't necessarily in chronological order. And it's just good to keep that in mind, that, that you don't get through Jeremiah's call in chapter 1 and this is the first sermon that he preaches. This isn't his, his, his preaching in lieu of a call or anything like that. The whole book is simply a collection of his visions, his sermons, and his teachings. And they're not necessarily arranged in any particular chronological order. They were compiled by his scribe, likely a guy by the name of Baruch. And so we don't know if this sermon that Jeremiah is preaching here came immediately after his calling or sometime in the future. Secondly, much of this book is is just the recording of what Jeremiah actually preached. Notice in verse two, it says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So this is a public teaching. It's not a letter like you get in the New Testament. It's not a private conversation like you might get in the Gospels. And so you gotta, it helps to just imagine that there are listeners here. There are people who are hearing these words and it would have been very difficult for Jeremiah's hearers to have to stand and and hear these things. It would have been very difficult for Jeremiah to have to stand in front of a hostile crowd and teach these things. Giving hard words to a people who don't want to hear it would have been an incredible challenge. But this picture of marriage that's painted for us here in chapter two, it's intended to paint a picture of the covenant devotion between the Lord and his people. Again, we think of marriage in human terms, husband and wife, but this is a metaphor that God has given to us to paint this picture of what devotion looks like between God and his people. And he paints this picture that exists here and the language is very much that of a honeymoon. You read this, and that's exactly the, the story that's being told here. The, the people followed him into the wilderness to unfamiliar territory, but God carefully watched after his bride. I think sometimes we struggle with this language, this imagery, because of our kind of modern sense of individuality. I know men in particular struggle with this language about being the bride of Christ and all of this, this wedding language, because the tough guy among us really says, I ain't no bride. I mean, that's how we respond to this. I ain't no bride. This is, I don't want to be part of the bride of Christ. That's, that's, that's effeminate. I don't, that's, not what, that's not what this is about. But it's important to remember that when the Bible presents this, this idea of being a bride, it's not talking about us as individuals. It's talking about us as a collective. It's not talking about emasculating the men in the room. It's talking about this, this image of us as a whole. I don't think for a second the angels are handing out wedding gowns to the saints at the end of time. That's not what's happening here. One author put it this way, you are not the bride of Christ, we are. And so it's not an individual thing, it's a group thing. And and that helps me to to celebrate it more because it's it's like, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with this whole bride thing. I'm not a bride, I like being the groom a whole lot better. Well, Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. And the reason that God uses this language as a metaphor is because people understand it. God gives us language, he helps us to understand things in language that we we recognize. He wouldn't give us language that we don't understand. And so for Israel, this covenant relationship between a husband and wife, it was well-known, it was well-established, it wasn't something that needed further explanation. Now, unfortunately, we are doing our dead level best today to try to confuse the meaning so that all this is unintelligible. I mean, that's where we are today, just like a, I mean, what is marriage today? Well, it depends on who you ask. In this room, marriage means one thing. Outside this room, it might mean something different depending on who you're talking to. And so as it becomes more and more confusing in the culture, these metaphors become more and more unintelligible to us, which means we have to stop and explain what it means now to a world that doesn't really even understand it anymore. But God gives us these metaphors to help us understand just like a preacher today might use a sports metaphor to communicate something of the trials and triumphs of the Christian walk, God uses these metaphors, this language that helps us to understand the Bible. And again, it's not intended to emasculate the men in the room by, have, by, by requiring them to have some sort of romantic love for Jesus, although a lot of our worship songs come across as that sort of romantic love, and that's not what this is about at all. Instead, this this paints a picture for us of fidelity and trust. That's what this is about. It's about Jeremiah reminding the people in this chapter about fidelity and trust. It is a picture of God's pursuit and protection of his people. His people left everything they knew in Egypt, and they followed the Lord into this vast, unfamiliar space. That took courage. That wasn't wasn't a, a, a cowardly act. That wasn't an emasculating act. And no matter who you were, leaving what you know to go to something that's unknown is is courageous. It's it's incredible. It's, It's about trusting. And what's amazing about this is how profound God's grace is in this. One of the things that's stressed in the Old Testament is the fact that the relationship between God and his people was not something that Israel earned. It wasn't something that they earned. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six. The nations completed their time in the wilderness. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. Listen to how Moses stresses to them about God's choice of the nation of Israel. Verse six in Deuteronomy seven. It says, for you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. God didn't choose Israel as his bride because of their might. If God were wanting to pick the strongest, most powerful nation, he would not have chosen Israel. He would have gone and knocked on Pharaoh's door and said, hey, Pharaoh, I've got a deal for you. That's not why God chose Israel. Why did God enter into a covenant with Israel? It says in verse eight, it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose Israel because God keeps his promises. God is faithful. God does what he says he's gonna do. He made a promise to Abraham and God doesn't forget those things. God is faithful to do what he says. It wasn't because Israel was all that great. It's because God is all that great. He could have chosen anybody, he chose Israel because he entered into a covenant with Abraham. But understand this, no relationship is without expectations. Our human relationships don't come without expectations. This relationship between God and Israel did not come without expectations. Verse nine there, it says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack, with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. If indeed this is a picture of marriage, then Israel has to acknowledge the expectation of faithfulness. God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is going to keep his end of the bargain. He's going to keep his side of the wedding vows. At the same time, though, Israel has a responsibility to follow God's instructions, to do what God says. They're not allowed to go pursue relationships with other deities and expect everything to remain healthy in their marriage with the Lord. It's no different than a human relationship and that if you go pursue relationships with other folks, your marriage is not going to be healthy. The point Jeremiah is making here in chapter two is that God kept his promise to the people. And in keeping with the metaphor, the Lord perfectly honored his wedding vows. He led them into the wilderness, but at the same time, he had a home ready for them. They simply had to trust him. They simply had to follow him to that end. And God was gonna do it. He even says down in verse seven here of chapter two, he says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things. God protected them. God met their needs. Even while they walked in the wilderness and rebelling against God in the wilderness, God took care of their daily needs by providing them with manna and quail. When they were thirsty, God provided water often in miraculous ways. God loved them faithfully and completely kept his covenant promises. But there's always two sides to every relationship. No marriage is healthy if only one side is committed to the health of the relationship. No marriage is healthy if only one side is committed to the promises that were made at the wedding. And therein lies the truth that's been bubbling to the surface for generations in Israel. And what God is telling them in Jeremiah chapter two is very profound. The honeymoon, honeymoon's over. Because in spite of God's Commitment to his people, his, his faithful commitment to his people, they rejected his faithful love. Look at verse 5, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You know, I read that, vo- that verse and I, I hear the voice of so many that I've counseled over the years. What did I do wrong? Invariably, when marriages struggle, both parties are guilty. Both parties have done something wrong, even if one individual's offenses are more egregious than the others. In human relationships, it's incredible, there's two sinners that are joining together into one covenant and nobody gets it right all the time. It's one thing I can guarantee when I get ready to do that, that mowage, you're not gonna get it right every single time. You're gonna mess up a lot along the way. Uh, Again, this is a rhetorical question that we all know the answer to. God says, what did I do wrong? And God did nothing wrong because God kept his end of the deal perfectly. Instead, what we find is that the people took advantage of God's good gifts. In verse six, he says this, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells. If they had stopped and just considered what God did, then perhaps they would have reconsidered. God brought them through the wilderness, through the darkness, and through the danger. It wasn't Baal that did that. It wasn't those Egyptian gods. There was no denying who took care of the people. It was the Lord who paved the way for the nation into the promised land. It was the Lord who ensured that they would be able to take the land with all of its goodness. It was the Lord who guaranteed all of those things. Even the leaders here, we might even say especially the leaders, joined in with this wholesale rejection of God's commitment to his people. Verse eight says that the priests were guilty of not seeking the Lord. The ESV goes on to say that the shepherds transgressed against me. I thought that was interesting because some translations actually say rulers there. I think the King James even says pastors. There weren't pastors in Jeremiah. But the idea here is that there were leaders of the people and regardless of which title you use, the end result is still the same. They abandoned their faith in the Lord. To use the language of our modern vernacular, they deconstructed their faith. Even the prophets changed the frequency of the radio station they were listening to. Instead of turning to God for divine revelation, it says that they turned to Baal. They listened to Baal radio for the latest divine revelation. Instead of remaining faithful to the one who repeatedly and faithfully demonstrated his care for his people, the prophet says that Israel went after things that do not Prophet, what a condemning statement that God is making here because he's appealing to a, the most basic sense of cost and benefit. We make those decisions on a daily basis. We do cost-benefit analysis. We do this, and, and, and the cost outweighs the benefit. We do this, and the benefit outweighs the cost. He's simply ap- appealing to some of the most basic ideas and some of the most basic uh, uh, ideals that we bring to the table. It, it doesn't profit. It's not worth it. The, the investment doesn't pay back enough. It doesn't profit you cost and benefit here in these spiritual matters. He's not appealing to higher ideals like theology or faithfulness. He's simply saying you're turning your back on the one who always has your back for something that will give you absolutely no benefit whatsoever. He says there's nothing good here, nothing to benefit from. It's completely irrational and it's a sin-blinded decision and it's gonna cost you dearly. Now, we read passages like this, and it's easy for us to sort of cast aspersions to the nation of Israel. We do that in, as, as modern Christians. We're like, man, Israel, they were a bunch of knuckleheads. I mean, man, if I had seen the Red Sea part, I'd have never done what, what they did. I wouldn't have done that. If I had been led in my life by a burning fire and pillars of smoke, a cloud, I would have never turned my back on the Lord. Those goofy Israelites, they never got it right, and we're quick to do that. Now, of course, we have to take passages like this, and instead of looking down on the Israelites, we ought to take the time to evaluate our own relationship with the Lord as well. Now, things are different because we're on this side of the cross, but our list of excuses may be even shorter because we understand what happened at the cross. But I think if we're gonna bridge the gap between Jeremiah and today, we have to acknowledge our own tendency to drift. The indictment that Jeremiah is laying out here took place over generations. It wasn't an overnight occurrence. It wasn't like the nation woke up one day and said, hey, today's the day we rebel against the Lord. Everybody turn your back on God. Today's the day. That's not what happened. This took place over generations and generations. And I think we all acknowledge that our walk with Christ has ebbs and flows. I think we all experience that from time to time. We have seasons where we're, we're, we're you know we're feeling good. Seasons where I'm I'm having my quiet time. Seasons where I'm at church. Seasons where I'm doing things. And then we have those seasons where we're struggling more. Where we don't hear the Spirit quite as clearly. But if you're taking a spiritual inventory in your life right now, which is what you should do as you encounter passages like this, if the Lord seems distant to you, the prophet is reminding us here that God didn't move. He looked at Israel and said, I didn't leave. I didn't turn my back. I kept my side of the promise. I kept my side of the covenant. I did everything I said I was going to do. God didn't move. It reminds me of playing in the ocean by the shore. If you stay in the waves long enough and you're not paying attention, you notice what starts to happen. You're playing, you're having a good time, you're playing with the kids, jumping the waves, whatever it is that you're doing, and, and at some point in time after you've been there a while, you look up and your chair and umbrella are 100 yards down the beach. It's like, well, who moved my chair and umbrella? Oh, wait, the hotel we're staying in is down there too. Who moved the hotel? Well, it's not that the chair and the umbrella moved. It's not that the hotel moved. It's that you were occupied in the shore and you drifted away from where you were. The things that were holding you down, the things, the landmarks in your life, those didn't move. It was, that, it was you that, that moved. You drifted down the shoreline. The beach didn't move, you did. If your connection with Christ is clouded, diminished, or simply not what it used to be, it's not because Jesus snoozed you on social media for 30 days. Isn't that, isn't that a great feature? I mean, I hate Facebook, but the fact that I, some of y'all get too political, I can take a break from you. Uh, and I can just snooze for a little bit. Not unfriend, not be nasty, but just like I am tired of political stuff. And just take a little nap for 30 minutes or 30 days. And then we come back and reevaluate. It's not like God did that to you. It's not like God snoozed you for 30 days to to silence you. It's not like He got tired of listening to you. That's not what happened. What happens is that you've allowed other things to creep into the spiritual space of your relationship. And it's so easy for that to happen. Have a busy week with a few late evenings. It gets harder to wake up in the morning to spend time in God's word and prayer. Have a few hectic weekends and forsake the gathering of the church. You might find yourself feeling disconnected, drained, discouraged. It's not because of anything Jesus did. It's not because of anything that he did. It's because of us, and that's on us to deal with. You see, with Israel, he was keeping his vows perfectly, and it was Israel that started to flirt with false gods. And the thing is, is is God has given us a really straightforward roadmap to correct course. For Israel, it was a straightforward roadmap. Do what you're supposed to do. Follow me, keep my word, do this, and you'll be where you're supposed to be. I will relent. He gave us a clear roadmap. But in order to follow the roadmap, we actually have to acknowledge that we got off course. How many of us are like that? We get lost, and the hardest thing is to stop and say, you know what, I don't have a clue where I'm at. And for men, the dreaded, we don't have to do it now because our phones will tell us where to go, but it wasn't that long ago that you get in that position and the worst thing you'd have to do as a man is swallow your pride and go go into the gas station and say, hey, how do I get to such and such? Getting to that point of acknowledging that you're off course takes a lot of swallowing the pride. At the same time, we have to be mindful of our drift. I think the prophet is cautioning us here as well spiritual pursuits or any pursuit away from the Lord are absolutely bankrupt. He says this in two different ways in the passage. At the end of verse five, he says they went after worthlessness and became worthless there at the end of verse eight. He says they went after things that do not profit, profit motive like money, not profit like Jeremiah. And I would imagine that the worship of idols in Israel had the illusion of opulence. I was thinking about this. I've never been to Las Vegas, and I'll be honest, it's not on my bucket list of places that I'm really interested to go to. If I have to go there to get somewhere else, I guess I will. But but the day you see Pastor Brian Carroll walking down the Las Vegas Strip, you need to check on me. Because uh, I have absolutely no desire to go and see that. But I've seen pictures. And the pictures I've seen, these massive hotels and casinos, I mean, fountains that dance. You can go Pigeon Forge and see a dancing fountain. You don't have to go to Las Vegas. And, and the picture just communicates this view of, of opulence, of, of riches, of, of wealth, of fame. And, and I just look at that, I think I think of the untold billions of dollars exchanging hands in, in that economy. And so you've got this incredible development uh, that's made of nothing but opulence and, and, and riches. But if you look at it from a spiritual standpoint, you see nothing but absolute bankruptcy. Nothing but bankruptcy. I think there's a particular indictment for us today because we as the church today, we exist in the most affluent nation that has ever existed. I know 2023, it may not seem like it quite as much as it did five or six years ago, but we live in the middle of the most affluent nation that has ever existed on the face of the planet. All the glorious empires of the past would look at the wealth of the United States of America and say, yeah, we'll take that. I mean, Rome would be like, here, you can have everything we have, we'll just take yours. And they'd be, they'd be incredibly wealthy. But the opportunities to pursue things other than Christ are vast because our prosperity has created opportunities for us to go after countless other things. But any of those pursuits that lead us away from Christ are simply leading us to a place of absolute bankruptcy. I can't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In Mark eight thirty six, for example, he says it. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? all those idols all those other things that we can pursue are worthless and unprofitable and they offer us absolutely no benefit but their song is so compelling and it cries out for our attention and the truth of the matter is is that none of us are immune from it jeremiah recognizes that it's the spiritual leaders here who are the chief sinners And the truth is, is you can stick a title in front of your name or after your name. You can add some educational initials after your title and you are still just as capable of transgressing against the Lord as anybody else. So if you're a pastor or deacon or teacher, guess what? You gotta be on guard too, lest you be lured by that which is worthless and unprofitable. And no other generation has been able to watch this unfold like we are today. Our generation is witness to public, I alluded to this earlier, but public deconstructions of high-profile leaders and influencers in the Christian community. When we hear that term deconstruction, what we're talking about are are people who essentially take apart their Christian faith and they rebuild it with only the pieces that they feel are, are most important, what, that, what happens is it's almost like taking a jigsaw puzzle, pulling half the pieces out, putting it back together again and saying, hey, look at my jigsaw puzzle. The problem is you didn't complete a jigsaw puzzle. You, you put part of it together, but you don't have a jigsaw puzzle. You've got part of a jigsaw puzzle. You've got something that looks like a completed puzzle, but it's missing critical pieces, And what's happening today is that these these deconstructors are claiming that they have found a kinder, gentler version of the Christian faith. But I will say this, what they're left with is no Christian faith whatsoever. One of the ways we see this deconstruction taking hold today is through a movement called Red Letter Christianity. If you look at your Bible, particularly in the Gospels, and the book of Revelation, you might find that the editors of your Bible made an interesting decision. They printed every word that was uttered by Jesus in red letters. The red letter Bible was first published in 1899 and ever since they've been a staple in Bible publishing. The first publication of a red letter Bible wasn't intended to give birth to a movement of watered down Christianity. Now, just to be transparent, my Bible right here, it's red letters. So, I, so don't be offended. I've got a red letter Bible right here. But if humans, humans are good at something. We're bad at a lot, but one of the things we're really good at is we can take something that's designed to be helpful and, and we can take that helpful tool and we can turn it into a destructive weapon. I mean, we are excellent at this. This is one of the things we excel at. We can take something that's very helpful and we can turn it into a very destructive weapon. These red letter Bibles today are being used to pit the words, against, the, words of, the words of Jesus against the words of Jesus. This is what's happening in a lot of this online deconstruction. More and more, there are people who are giving more weight to the words Jesus spoke than the words Jesus inspired. Understand the difference? We open our gospels and we see where Jesus spoke things. We open the letters to Paul and say, well, Jesus didn't speak that, but Jesus did inspire that. And that inspiration is just as valid as the words that are spoken because it's all coming from the same source. More and more people are saying, you know what, I only read those red letters because if I only read the red letters and I can toss out the Old Testament and all that hard stuff, I can get rid of all, you know, Paul was so harsh. Paul spoke things that were so 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 mean and nasty sometimes. So I can just get rid of Paul and I can just read the red letters because that's the pure, simple words of Jesus. And my Bible says, it's not in red letters, but it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, not just the parts that we like. This is just a new version of an old heresy that's been around since the first centuries of the Christian faith. It began courtesy of a guy named Marcion, a wealthy and very connected second century churchman, and he promoted his own brand of Christianity. Marcion refused to accept that the wrath of God shown in the Old Testament was the same as the God of love that's depicted in the New. And there's still a lot of folks who believe that. They don't like the idea of God's wrath against sin being poured out on the cross. And so they have to disregard all of that about God's wrath. Marcion took it so far as to say there were actually two separate beings, that Yahweh in the Old Testament was just an angel tribal deity of the Jews and the father of the New Testament is a benevolent universal God who sent Jesus to offer the world nothing but love and mercy with no hint of judgment. Marcion edited the scriptures to remove anything that he considered unpalatable and he was left with a very, very short canon. I hear contemporary preachers today pleading to their megachurch congregations that they need to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament. But let me just say this, that's just a new version of the same old lie. And it's well down the pathway, not just of unhitching the old from the new, but actually hitching the church to a lie. And according to Jeremiah here, it's an unprofitable lie. And what you're left with is Christianity light. And Christianity light is just another dead, unprofitable, worthless idol, and we would better be careful that we avoid the temptation to embrace it. We're living in days where our commitment to Christ is being challenged. It's being challenged by the outside by those who want to see the gospel diluted and polluted. They want to see it perverted and changed and corrupted in so many different ways. If you don't believe me, turn on the news, watch it for a day, and you will find that there are countless opportunities for your faith to be called into question. The new speaker of the house is a Southern Baptist, and buddy, they have found out, and they have attacked him for it. Uh, He's been, as far as I know, I don't know the man personally, but his public witness is that he's been faithfully committed to, to his church and to the gospel, and they want to tear that down. Because you can't have a prominent man in, or woman in that position who is committed to their faith. I hope we need to pray for him because he does represent us in that regard, and so we should be praying for him. It's being challenged from the inside, though, as we continue to struggle against sin. We continue to do battle, we continue to fight against sin. But even as we continue to fight, as we continue to recognize the challenge that we're facing, we always need to remember, and this is the lesson from Jeremiah 2, God hasn't moved an inch. He hasn't budged. He is still the same, and he will continue to be the same forever and ever and ever. And so what do we do? Well, I do what I do when I'm in the, the shore, and I don't want to drift 100 yards away from my chair and umbrella. I keep my eyes on where I'm stationed. I keep my eyes fixed on that thing that's not moving so that even when the waves and the tides are pushing me, I can push back on the tide because I'm watching where I am anchored. I'm watching where I belong. I'm keeping my eyes fixed on that thing that is not moving. Because if I watch the tides, I'm gonna move with them. I'm gonna go with them. I'm gonna go where they take me. But if I keep my eyes fixed on that unmovable object, then it gives me a point of anchor and a point to stay. And that's true for us as well as we walk with Christ. We do our best To keep our eyes fixed on him so that we don't drift from him, but we cling to him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the prophet Jeremiah. For the for the metaphor of marriage that he gives us. Father, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on that which is not moving. It's so easy, Lord because there's so many different ways that we're being pulled, that we're being attracted, so many different attacks upon our faith. Some are, some are absolutely overt. They're upfront. They're, they're, they're direct challenges. But Lord, I think so many times that, that what happens to us is that slow drift. We get busy and we miss our time in the word. We get distracted and we miss our get time in the gathering. We let other things creep in. We allow our gaze to be captured by other things. And it doesn't take long before we've drifted a long, long way away from where we're supposed to be. Thank you, God, for not moving. Thank you for keeping your side of the covenant. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for doing what you said you're going to do. As we keep our eyes fixed on that rock-solid promise, Help us, Lord, to strive against sin, to, to fight in a world that is, that is wanting to take us away from, from that truth, to stand up for what we believe, to be a positive, solid witness to a lost and dying world. Thank you for the pictures that you give us in your word that help us to understand you better. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.